0: What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 52 of The Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Jared of Tree City Solving List, based out of Oregon. We get to talk about what initially got him into Hash and eventually Rosin, as well as how his brand has evolved over the last several years and much more. So definitely stay tuned for it. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with the best ceiling carb cap in the game. You can grab them on Instagram at Zach Brown glass or on his site, Zach Shout out to every person that makes up our community on Patreon without their continued support. We would not be able to continue bringing you episodes. So thanks to each and every one of you again. If you would ever like to support the podcast, get access to early releases, additional interviews and more. You can do so at patreon.com backslash the That's the on our Instagram bio at the hashishin or on our website, TheHashishin.com. Also, a shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. Again, you can visit at RosinEvolution.com or on Instagram at RosinEvolution100, where you'll find the best deal in hash, Rosin Evolution's trusty and affordable full mesh wash bags, as well as their tried and true rosin bags, trusted by hash makers all over the country from small batch to commercial. So if you wash hash or you press rosin, Rosin Evolution has got you covered with their unmatched products and customer service. They're your one-stop shop for anything rosin. And to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI 710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro, who you can visit on their site, ToroGlassGallery.com or on their Instagram at Toro underscore glass. They've been pioneering functional glass art since the early 2000s. They stay at the forefront of innovation where their passion for cannabis and its resin has inspired them to create new ways for us all to consume it. While maintaining their extremely high standards of quality. So no matter where you are in the world. If you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art. That focuses on high-end function and design. Visit Toro at ToroGlassGallery.com. Or again on their Instagram at Toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies Hash Head Outfitters. Who you can visit on Instagram at Hash Head Outfitters or on their website, hashheadoutfitters.com, where they focus on small batch, high grade clothing for hash lovers that gets you feeling extra cozy with that dab. I just grabbed another set myself because I find myself wearing my Hash or sweatpants more and more. They're a perfect blend of quality and comfort. You can feel good in that the 100% cotton is sourced responsibly and you can look great in all the cool colorways they've been dropping. So if you're like me and you love to feel comfortable when you're chilling, check out our new friends who cater to Hash Lovers Lifestyles. Again, on Instagram, Hash Head Outfitters or on their site, HashHeadOutfitters.com. Again, a shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up our guests with my favorite carb cap in the game. Check out his V2 series and beyond at Zach Brown Glass or on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass. I appreciate you listening, and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 52 of The Hashishin. I'm your host, Sharagam Amir. Today, I am stoked to be here with Jared of Tree City Solventless. List. You can follow them on Instagram at tree underscore city underscore solvent list. What's up, dude? How are you today?
1: Doing great, brother. Doing great. Super stoked to be here on the show with you today. Yeah, likewise, man. We were just talking about
0: that right before we started. I'm always super thankful for people coming on and making time out of their busy schedule. So again, thank you. It was cool to briefly meet you at the Smoking Jacket last year. You rolled through for a day with your fire garlic juice. So it's nice to reconnect with you, man.
1: Yeah, yeah, man. It was awesome.
2: I wish I could have been around for the entire event that weekend. But the time that I spent there was just
0: honestly the best event I've ever been to, been a part of. Thank you, man. It's a, it's a trip to me and it's definitely not to to plug the event, but yeah, we're stoked to do it again this year. And hopefully you can see like it all play out this year, from a two day thing to a three day thing. But on that note, you know, on that trip, I believe you and your family were headed to like an MMA competition.
2: A big jujitsu tournament. Yeah. The wife got me tickets for my birthday. Uh, that was the, the second day of the event was actually my birthday too. So we were out in Vegas and, uh, It was crazy, man. They had like 68 competitors getting after it. It was a
1: two-day event too. It was wild. Is that something
0: that you guys are into as a
1: family? Yeah, yeah. Me and my wife and both of our sons all trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And when did you guys start getting into that? So
2: I started my son, he's nine now, my oldest boy. I started him in it a little over a year and a half ago and i was just sitting there watching him train and i was like damn this is dope i've always watched like ufc and stuff like that you know growing up but uh watching my kid do it i was like this is this is cool so after he finished up he wanted to try out the wrestling class and uh i was watching the the adult jiu-jitsu and i was like oh man if my kid's going to get out there and do this i got to i got to step up and give it a go myself so i i dipped my toes in it and then maybe like a month later the wife jumped in so my littlest boy just turned. He just turned four, so he did. He didn't get a start until November, so he's only been doing it
1: for a few months now. But we got the whole clan getting after
0: it. Yeah, that's really cool, man. I definitely see that's part of your feed on your personal page. Like you're real active within the jujitsu community. So I always find it cool to talk about what people are into uh, in their personal lives. It's funny enough. We usually save this like towards the end of the podcast, but I think <laughs> that's a pretty present thing in your life. So it's cool to talk about it a little bit. Another thing that I've seen in regards to that is you're actually like sponsoring through tree city, maybe some people that are doing jujitsu or something like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, man, I've had, I've had the opportunity to sponsor a couple of professional MMA fighters for uh Bellator for some local organizations. And then also a few jujitsu players for uh combat Jitsu worlds back just a few months ago. I've been able to meet a lot of really cool people. And, uh, the overlap between the cannabis community and the jujitsu community is actually a pretty big overlap that I wasn't aware of at first. So it's, it's been really cool to be able to kind of co-promote both ways, you know, it's, it's, it's been helpful for them and it's been helpful for me and
0: it's cool. So maybe like kind of a weird topic, but what role do you see like cannabis having with people that are into jujitsu and that overlap? Do people, for example, like yourself, maybe do you consume cannabis before getting into it or what's your style?
2: Yeah, man. So me personally, I love I love getting lit right before class. Like I'll take I'll take a few few dabs right before I get in the car. And then I'll also be hitting the pen on the way there, get into class. It, I don't know, man, it's, I would think that it would slow me down. But it honestly just kind of loosens me up and makes it just so much more of an entertaining experience. Like, you got to I mean, you got to be able to take it for what it is it's a couple it's a couple guys rolling around on the on the floor in spandex so i mean like if you're not <laughs> laughing at it then you're not doing it right so i just like getting stoned and going in there and playing around and having fun man take turns choking each other out and it's really really cool actually like i've met so many so many intelligent individuals at the gym and just like some really cool friends that uh, i don't think i ever would have met had i
0: not taken that opportunity and on that note uh when we spoke last time you told me you feel like at this point in your life you're like at the best shape in your life do you feel like this is part of that
2: oh yeah absolutely man like i grew up playing sports my whole life and i was always i was always fit skateboarded for 15 years but like getting into this gym and just seeing how like uh how, how do you how do i want to put this like a uh, how fragile i was man like i've got these scrawny little nerdy looking guys coming up and just grabbing my arms and just twisting me around and choking me out and it's like it's it's humbling man it's extremely humbling to understand like how actually weak you are so like through jiu i've started uh doing like some some cardio and some strength training and stuff like that too and then just obviously jujitsu is an extremely physical sport by itself so through all of that like I've really, really been able to dial it in and get a lot healthier than I've ever been, like physically cardio wise just like feel great, man, and it's awesome too, because my kids are getting bigger, so being able to pick up my big ass nine year old and being able to wrestle around with him and stuff it's just, it's awesome, man One of the really interesting overlaps that I've found man, is uh <laughs> the law enforcement aspect at the gym, bro there's so many cops at the gym the sheriffs, state troopers, city police, all these people. Like we were talking about, I'm sponsoring some of the guys at the gym, some of the girls at the gym. So it's like, they know what I do. And there's like, there's never any kind of like weirdness. Like, it's just where I never thought I'd get the opportunity to choke out a sheriff, but like getting, you know, getting to get back in and strangle <laughs> a sheriff is a pretty cool experience. And then for there to be no repercussions,
0: whew, that's a cool feeling, man. Yeah, that's definitely unique, man. That's uh, really funny and and interesting at the same time. Speaking on what you do, part of the reason you told me you got into Hash is because early on you found out that you had asthma. And, you know, correlating that to obviously playing sports growing up and stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about your trajectory, not only smoking weed, but how that developed for you into Hash, basically?
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So... My whole life growing up, I I started smoking weed at a really young age. Like uh, My my dad was a heavy, heavy smoker and my sisters and my brother were too. So I was introduced to it at a young age and I didn't necessarily get affected by it at that point. But by the time I was like 14, it really started like just breaking down my breathing. I started having asthma attacks and getting hospitalized right around 14. So at that point, I didn't necessarily want to admit that it was the weed. So I would keep smoking and keep dealing with it and just medicating with inhalers and stuff like that. But by the time I was in my twenties, I was realizing that it was just like really, really bad. So I tried to like, I tried to uh, tone down on the smoking a little bit, really didn't like that with my anxiety and stuff like that. So went back to smoking heavily. And then by that time I started hearing about shatter and dabs and, dabbled in that a little bit but honestly like at this point it was still pretty pretty brutal tame soup so like that was even worse once the hash once like the bho started getting cleaned up i started smoking like dabbing a lot heavier and that's when i stopped smoking tree and that was probably around like 2013 maybe 2014 and it was honestly pretty damn good but then a couple of buddies started introducing me to just some really, really fire ass six star. And I was like, Whoa, all right, this is, this is like clean, clean on my lungs. Like this is giving me no problems breathing, you know, like I'm coughing. I'll always cough, but like, it's not giving me any kind of restriction. It's not breaking me up. So I started smoking hash, but once I figured out I could press it into rosin, I found that that shit's even cleaner for my lungs. So like, I've just slowly been like refining the smoke little by little, like, and not to say six stars ever been like bad, but it's a little more charry on the smoke. So it's like, it's definitely, I feel it a little bit more as a sensitive smoker. I'll always love six star, (laughs) you know, like rosin for me is just like, that's my daily. I smoke it all day. I'll smoke two, three grams a day, no problem. And like, I barely touch my inhaler ever. Like I'm working out six days a week, like barely ever touching my inhaler. So, like the, the regimen that I'm on right now, is just like, I feel like it's just working for me and my body super well. The pollen outside kicks my ass more than smoking rosin does.
0: Yeah, depending where you are, it definitely could do a number on you, man. The, the allergy game is strong for sure. Bro, up here in the Pacific Northwest, it's absolutely brutal. This year
2: specifically, like, we're, we're breaking records up here.
0: Yeah, but the, it's interesting that, like, you know, the, the rosin, you feel. Is even lighter on your lungs if you want to say it that way. Do you exclusively smoke rosin at this point? No, not
2: exclusively. I'll still smoke weed and I'll still smoke donuts and I'll still smoke six star. Rosin is just my go to. Like if I'm looking at my, I'm sitting in here in front of my smoke station right now and all I have out is five, six jars of rosin. So it's not, it's not my regular go to to have hash out. I have some in the freezer, but it's not, it's not my regular go to on the daily.
0: Now going back to the time where you got introduced to BHO initially, what years
2: was that around? do you remember I'd say that was probably around 2013 two thousand twelve maybe and
0: you mentioned the fact of it like getting better or getting cleaner over time. What was your experience with some of the early bHO? Oh man, some of the early
2: BHO is brutal. I was making slabs in my in my garage back in the day and just oh man it's it's Sad to even admit that kind of shit. But I was making slabs back in the day with like super, super primitive setups, man. And that was, it was pretty, but that shit had, God, I don't even want to know how much butane in it.
0: So by the refinement process, do you mean more so like people figured out how to do it more proper where there wasn't as much butane, for example, retained?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, just as far as like the, the technology advancements over the next couple years alone were just like huge, like switching out to across internationals and shit like that and getting it back and all that good stuff, de waxing, like the
0: early the early
2: days were dark, dark days, man.
0: And being from the area, how did you see people like kind of develop over the last let's say ten years? Let's say that was 2013. Now we're at 2023. Were people like more into flower for a really long time and and like the oils and the wax kind of developed into like a stronger thing now.
2: Absolutely, man. Like the so like the BHO was it wasn't too prevalent in the beginning, but like I'd say probably about 6 years ago is when it really started catching on up here. Even now like there's not a ton of rosin heads just like in the general population out here like you know what I mean? There's homies everywhere, but it's not a, like people still smoke hell of BHO up here. Like if you're just like out, you're out at the lake and you're hitting the, you're hitting the river, you're hitting the puff and someone comes up, they're asking what kind of wax you're smoking. And they're asking what kind of shatter. It's it's pretty rare to have someone come up and be like, yo, yo, you smoke solventless? Like it's at least out in the wild. You, if you're at events and stuff like that, that's a whole nother story.
0: Yeah. And I find that that's, you know, based on who's there, right? So at events, there's certain kind of people with certain kind of interest. And if you're there, they're probably interested in similar to what you are, maybe. And outside, like you said, in the wild, it's just like this general public. And it's a very different consumption pattern, I feel like within
1: them.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Like, if you walk into a bunch of dispensaries around here, you're going to see everyone is focusing on like, the high THC product and they're focusing on what's on the bottom shelf. There's not a ton of connoisseur style shops in
0: the area. What is like a price point difference between, for example, BHO these days to like rosin? And I know that varies depending on, you know, the quality of both those products. But is do you feel like that's part of the equation as to why people consume more, quote unquote, wax up there is just like it's cheaper?
2: Yeah, hundred percent, man. You can you can literally walk out the door from the dispensary with ten dollars grams of shatter, and you can get distillate pens for like fifteen bucks. Like, it's super super cheap up here. There's so well, and a, a huge part of that is on the recreational market up here. Like, there was a huge oversaturation of producers that were just growing humongous amounts of outdoor cannabis, thinking it was all going to sell after there had been like some really high market spikes. And then everyone oversaturated the market at the same time, and there was just you know hundreds of thousands of pounds of of herb being dried and being processed. So all that came in at the same time, all of it got flooded out, and stuff just started dropping drastically. Like there was a point where BHO was selling for like sixty dollars a gram at the dispensaries, live resin for more than that.
0: And then just out of curiosity, for example, like a rosin. I know you may not go into dispensaries a bunch for that, but what is kind of a price point around your part of the Pacific Northwest?
2: So right around here in the Eugene area, there's a decent uh, variation in price, just like based on the hash makers and stuff like that. But it's, it's typically going for like the higher tier rosins are going to be around like $60 a gram. Some of them are up like $80 a gram. And then uh, you can definitely get like, there's a lot of, cats who are just like starting out on the market that haven't had a chance to make a name for themselves that are doing like even like 30 35 grams of rosin i've seen for for some full spec and stuff up there uh just for like a little more comparison to like when the shatter was back in its heyday at like 60 70 like the few producers that had rosin on the market were almost up to a hundred dollars a gram at that point too like it's nowhere near that now though it's dropped substantially
0: yeah it sounds like almost like a sliding scale like once there's overproduction of one, there'll likely be more production of the other. And so the more there is, I guess, the less valuable it could be.
2: Yeah, I think that's the way it's been seen. And then once, once a few of the manufacturers started to make that drop, a lot of other ones kind of just followed suit without, without wanting to risk a, a secondary collapse in their, so to speak, in their market.
1: You worked for dispensaries for a while, right? Like what years were those? So I started working in the dispensaries. My first one, I think,
2: was probably 2016, I'd say. Maybe, uh, probably 2015, 2016, right around then. And I was working with those guys for about two years. And then I got offered a different spot at a much better dispensary that had a, a lot of really good qualities about them. And they had a really good... uh just like a really good reputation in the in the industry for having really compassionate owners that were taking care of all their patients, and like they started with with a patient being one of the owner's wives, and just really built off that, and had a really really good reputation in the community. So I jumped over with those guys and and uh, started bud tending, worked my way up, managed, bounced over and helped started a new location for them, managed product intake. Actually, did the first collaboration with those guys for the first recreational rosin drop in Oregon. I want to say that was in 2019, I think. No, that was that must have been 2018, I believe, because that was just months before I ended up quitting. Actually, they ended up getting some investors and having some really poor business decisions, and uh, they didn't have those same. Quality outlooks for their patients and kind of dropped a lot of their patients and didn't continue the patient program and changed a lot of the aspects of their business and one of those was the kind of changed up the agreement we had on that Rosin collaboration didn't compensate me for it and it kind of signaled for me that I needed to just focus on myself and really just jump into what I wanted to do head first. That was that was when I started True City. Was when I quit. When I quit working for TJs.
1: Do
0: you feel like? For example, having gone through those different experiences from being a budtender to kind of, you know, moving on and then working through other positions, has that carried over at all to Tree City? Like, has that helped you in any way, whether it's, you know, getting to know people and what they want, patients or their feedback, has it helped?
2: Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So like, I would say in a few different ways, it's really helped me out, primarily, like bro, I'm a fucking head. Like I'm like, I got a job at the dispo cause I wanted discounts cause I smoked so much and I was at the shop so much, man. Like <laughs> I, I love nothing more than smoking high quality cannabis. Like that's just, that's above everything else. Like, and I feel like that's what in my opinion makes tree city solventless fire is just that like, I'm not putting a product out there unless I would personally want to smoke it. And I do smoke it. So like, it, I know it's good product going out to these patients and stuff like that. And like in addition to like just like really being able to build my palate through working at dispensaries and getting some fire and meeting growers and working meeting different med patients and med growers and like just spreading that web, like you kind of mentioned, like being able to communicate with patients and figure out what people need and what can actually help people out, man. Like it's not just about making fire solving lists, but it's also about helping patients out and stuff. Like one of my first patients was a neighbor who had cancer. And we, I was able to help her out for a couple of years. So actually I was able to help her out with it, with the help of TJ's at first. And then when they closed down their programs, I continued to help her after that. And she ended up being able to get through all of her chemo and shit that she was going through. And like all the solventless, all the edibles, like it was killing it for her and just like really, really helping her out. So like being able to make those connections and, and help people is just like Dude, I, I I've cried talking to patients on too many accounts, dude. Like, it's just like literally the coolest thing in the world. And like, I've definitely got soft after peanut parent. I cry about a lot of shit, but like, <laughs> like, dude, like helping someone actually change their quality of life with the plant is like the dopest feeling in the world. Like knowing that you did change in someone's life, like, there's nothing like it. So like, working through the medical program back in the day before recreational, like that absolutely put me on to like that feeling from an early point. Like I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to make fire. So like, that was a really, really important part of working in the dispensaries. Cause like, you know, before dispensaries, like I always sold fucking dump sacks and shit like that. But like, it was never about a patient. Like it's just about making a little bit of money and smoking for free at that point. But like, when you're actually like, when you see it from a different perspective and you get to help people, like it's just a completely different change of perspective at that point. And it really switched the mindset.
1: I think this is an obvious answer but do you feel like that mindset has helped kind of push the force behind what you're doing now?
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. I think that it's really changed the mindset because it's really just pushed me to push me to always give 100% of the effort and really just try to bring a quality product to to the patients whether whether you're smoking for fun or you're actually smoking for a purpose, like there needs to be quality medicine. And like, that's just something that I've always really uh, strived to to bring to market.
0: Now, you brought up an interesting point in saying that you developed your palate through working at the dispensary. And I'm sure you had been smoking quite a bit of weed and wax before then and, and building that up. But do you feel like that is an important part of being able to create a high quality product is to you yourself have that reference of what quality is.
2: 100%.
0: Absolutely. I think that there are
2: exceptions to the rule. I, like the, I know there are a lot of people out there who don't even consume cannabis that can still bring a phenomenal product to market. But that being said, I feel like it really gives me a lot more insight into the product, being able to, to know the terpenes, being able to process those terpenes and, and really understanding the high that it's going to give too. If someone asks me and they're like, hey bro, I got I got like super bad tinnitus and my, my arm is killing me like off this drop. What's really going to help me, bro? I can talk out my ass and just tell him anything's going to help or I can be like, actually dog, like... I was smoking on the double banana and that shit is really, really helping me with my back pain too. So like when I get done rolling, like that stuff is like, that's exactly what I'm cracking open. So I bet you that's going to help you too. As long as you're into some, some unripe banana turps mixed with a little bit of sweet candy, like that's going to be your jam, bro. Like, and if he doesn't want that turp, we'll move on. And maybe I got a plan B that I can help him out with too. But if I don't, if I can't consume the product and process and, and really just like, understand the product, then I don't know that I want to pass that to someone like for me personally, like I want to really understand what I'm giving these people. So for me, it, it really does help me in that sense.
0: So on that note, talk to us about how you work your way through the resins once they're processed, for example, you know, if you're able to give people recommendations, and I'm assuming that you're spending a good amount of time with your own resin and seeing like you're saying in your case, what it does for you physically, mentally, whatever you want to look at it, talk to us a little bit about how that process of refinement works for you in finding the resins that you eventually end up keeping
2: in the sense of like when I'm hunting and and uh working through my garden yes, correct cool, cool yeah so if i'm if I'm searching for certain things in the garden i'm 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 searching for a few different things like. I want flavor is a must. Potency is a must. And medication is not always a must because I feel like there's, there is a fair amount of people who are going to be looking for product that aren't necessarily looking for medical relief. So that's not always a determining factor, but it will help me select if I have like, say three plants, from the same hunt that are all equal to me. If this one has the most medicinal effects, I'm absolutely keeping that. I might keep a second, but that's like, that's a determining factor in that sense. But flavor and potency are two things for me. And then the actual resin quality itself, if it's going to be dry grainy, or if it's going to be, you know, too greasy to where I can't even, I literally can't even work the resin. Like I ca- I, re- I have to be really, really picky in that sense. Like I've had so many things Man, when I was hunting the belts pack specifically, like I had a belts number 12 that was just the fucking dankest easy i I've ever, ever, ever smelled in my life, man. But as soon as I test washed it, it was just smeared heads, bro, like 38 degrees in the cold room. I'm, I'm literally like, so I'm so bummed out because it's the dopest, dopest dope I've ever smelled as far as like Z Terps. And it just literally was just wouldn't work for me, just wouldn't do it. Like, so I have to be really picky. Like, there's nothing I can do in that sense. So it really has to be a balance between the super, super oily heads and the dry heads. Like, that's one thing that has just broke my heart so many times.
0: And that definitely just seems to be part of like walking hash, right? It's just if at this point you're, you're fresh freezing everything, which it sounds like you are part of the game is like a lot of times it may not work. Yeah,
2: man. I, all of my gardens are completely fresh frozen. I, I used to save a little bit for dry flower, but at this point it didn't make sense for, for the small amounts I was saving. So everything goes to fresh frozen and I have definitely had some heartbreaks, man. I've definitely had some heartbreaks. I've had some that were literally like two grams off of a 5k wash, just heartbreakers, man had some that came out just like weird ass brown color not good heads like no idea must have taken them too long or something like fucking hella ambered out though like dude i've had some weird
0: weird heads for sure in some of these instances are there strings that like you think are going to work based on looking at them touching at them and then in the water they do do something completely unexpected let's call it
2: yeah, but I would say more so in those cases, it's more of a sense of like, they completely lose the turp. That's more so I feel like what I run into in that situation is that I'm smelling this. I'm like, whoa, this is super, super fire, like kerosene gas on grapes. And then I'll spin it. And then it's like, oh, this is like, just like, kind of all right. Like, I've, I've ran into that issue before, but nothing too crazy in that sense. Like, typically speaking if the heads are like just on like the finger tester feeling nice on the fingers like typically speaking in those senses like they're all they they deliver to a degree like you know like your your yields may not be what you want but like as far as being the head that you're looking for i feel like it's pretty
1: pretty standard there
0: okay cool and then so you know translating that to the garden what are typical characteristics that you're looking for in plants that you're for example hunting for
2: So when I'm hunting through plants, I mean, I'll try to avoid any kind of crazy mongoloids. I'll usually keep them and throw them off to the side. But like, I'm not super picky with my plants, man. If there's a plant that has amazing turps or amazing properties to it that grows like shit, I'll still keep it and I'll still run it just because it has exceptional hash. But if it's just a generic, you know, this is a good growing plant, I want it to grow like papaya with with less leaf, man. Like I love the growth structure on papaya minus when it's a default day.
0: And for people that may not be familiar with that structure,
2: how would you describe it? <laughs> understood. Understood. I like them. Um, I personally like them um, stockier with uh, a lot of branches, multi topped. Like uh, I'm not growing really tall rooms. I'm not doing anything like that. I like, I like to keep it manageable size. It's just me and my wife in the garden. So I can't do anything too crazy. I've been to some of the homies gardens who have these big seven foot monsters going and it's. I wish I could do something like that. But with two kids and me and the wife running the the ship, we got to be able to make things manageable.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it is that everybody can do it however is suited for them and you, you can find a way to make it work.
2: It's been such a such an awesome journey between me and the wife. Like uh, We've been able to do so much and, and uh, accomplish so much with the company. We're just really looking forward to, to what we can do over these next couple of years
0: too. Now, going back to some of the things that you're looking for in the resin once it's processed, one of the things that stood out to me last time is you told me you like to have the resin out for a while or a long time or even a couple of weeks while you're smoking on it. To see what happens to it throughout the process, and that that's actually something that factors into whether you end up keeping those plants that produce that resin or not.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't want anything that's going to dry out and get all crusty and oxidized super easily. Like it's important that it's going to be able to hold up the table test and, and hang out on the sesh table. So if the, if the resin isn't checking all the boxes, then the resin doesn't belong on the, on the table in my opinion. So it's really important to be able to, to push it. And, you know, just like, I'll take them in the car rides with me. I'll, I'll leave jars out on, on the dashboard for a couple hours. You know, like I put them through the ringer to try to really have quality in the, inside of the tree city
0: jars. Have there been many examples of things that you really liked, but throughout this kind of R and D process that you put them through, which just sounds like almost like real life scenarios, mostly have you discarded a genetic because of that at some point
2: yeah there's a couple plants that a couple a couple of moms that i've had to get rid of just because i wasn't a big fan of how they stood up to the test you know like uh i've got rid of a couple papaya bxs that i thought were going to be keepers i really liked the terps on those but they ended up just getting kind of almost like cardboardy like the flavor not the not not, not even necessarily the resin like still wet but like the flavor profile just like drifted away as, as the jar sat in a nice sealed jar, UV jar, like, but it just didn't last. The flavor almost like vaporized off it. I can't think of the term, but uh, like off gassed like too volatile of a terpene. I went to go dab it and it was just like a completely different product. So I got rid of those, I'm trying to think of what else I got rid of. There was a couple couple banana dogs that were, that did similar stuff. I think terp preservation is really like top tier for me. Like I would rather a product get a little drier and keep its terpenes than stay wet and not have that flavor profile that I originally put in that jar.
0: So this may be hard to say because I know your genetics are likely changing, you know, from time to time, hunt to hunt. But as a generality, what would you say is like the ideal consistency that you're looking for in resin? and? at this point, what's your favorite way of processing or is it like a wet batter?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So as far as consistency goes, I personally don't like it too wet to where it's smearing and I can't clean my jar, man. Like some of these jars I grab, like some spendy ass jars, bro. Like I want to get every last dab out of there. I don't want that smearing on there. So it's, I almost like, like you were saying, a more cake battery consistency for me personally. One that picks up easily, stays on your dabber. It's not dripping off of your dabber while you're torching up and landing on your table. Also not dry though. I don't want it to be, it's like, it's a fine line, man. Like I don't want it to be dry to where it's also crumbling off the dabber. Like it needs to be able to stick together and stick on the dabber. Like just really, really nice, cakey.
0: Yeah. Like everything in life, right? Most of the good stuff is is where the balance is at between these things. <laughs> oh yeah man well speaking of torching up you down for a dab absolutely bro cool we'll take a smoke break then Shout out to the homie and sponsor Zach Brown of Zach Brown Glass. That's Z-A-C-H Brown Glass on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass, where he keeps whipping up carb caps with the absolute highest standards of quality control. I can't tell you how many caps I've seen Zach test and toss because their function wasn't just perfect. And honestly, getting to know him over the last year, it makes it clear to me why he's so rigorous with his caps, because he's passionate about his craft and even more passionate about your dabbing experience. I used to personally wonder how much a carb cap could actually make a difference during my dabbing experience. And after trying his V2 series, they've been my favorite carb cap since. They not only seal perfectly, but they definitely enhance your experience from being able to take lower temp dabs to making your resin more efficient. So if you're looking to improve your dabbing experience, and get the perfect seal every time, hit up Zach Brown Glass, again, on Instagram, at Zach Brown Glass, or on his website, zachbrownglass.com. I really appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So going back to that first collab that you talked about potentially being in 2018 or 2019, through the dispensary, into that, you know, first and drop on the rec market, right? Yeah, yeah. You told me that in part, That came from you having an admiration for people that were making hash, hash makers. You were kind of like a fan of these guys at the dispensary. And part of your aspiration was to be able to do what they did. Can you tell us a little bit about where that came from?
2: Yeah, yeah. So when I was figuring out after BHO was helpful, I started finding hash. I, I had a couple good homies that were making some super, super fire hash. So I started just buying from them, pressing it out and smoking that built up like a really big, like passion for it and realized how much I appreciated it. Like really, really dude. Like I, I used to sit there and like press these flabs out and sit there and do rosin art cutting my slices and shit through them. Like I was, I was in love with it, bro. Like it was just like something that just brought me so much happiness being able to sit there and press it out like back in the day and coffee filters and shit. Like, I loved it, bro. Like it was something I was just so happy to do all the time. So like naturally I was like, yeah, I want to start making my own hash. Like this is, this is what I really, really want to do. Like, I don't like nothing else is making me happy like this at the moment. Like I'm skateboarding's kind of fizzling out for me. You know, I'm getting older and my bones are getting brittle and shit. Like, so I start, I hit my homies up. I'm like, yo, Justin, Tyler, I need some help. Like shout out Origin Extracts and Barry's Bubble. Like the homies share all this knowledge with me and just bless me with everything that they know at the time. Like this is probably like 2016 at this time, maybe a little earlier. And these guys are just like unbelievably kind people, just like sharing all their information with me, knowing that I want to make hash like for myself and for other people too. And so like, they just put me on and I start making hash with a couple homies in our gardens, you know, real small gardens at the times, like just practicing what I can here and there. And then that's when TJs was like, "Yo, like, uh, do you want to do it on one of our gardens?" We had this really, really fire room at MK Ultra come down, but it got seeded out. So if you want to, like, we got it all frozen. Otherwise, it's going to get blasted and turned into BHO. And I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm ready. Let's 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 do this." So that's when we ran that collab. And uh, I want to say that was like Christmas 2018. Yeah, man, that was. That was a really, really fire batch of MK Ultra. Super, super turpy, but unbelievably low yields on that batch, too. Like, super, super lemony, would just like, I think we got back like under a QP off like, it was like 17K, dude. Like, it was such bad yields.
0: Was that like a revelation for you, or were you pretty aware that that could be the case where like yields could be that low, for example?
2: So for me it kinda it validated like one of my early thoughts that like lemon terps are not <laughs> they're not the vibe for washing ash. I like like I was saying, I do like I had a couple of small gardens between me and friends. So like I had ran a couple of lemon strains and like I just like it was like strikeout after strikeout after strikeout through those hunts, man. And then that I was like, All right, but I'm staying away from lemon. That's not my vibe. So I stayed away from lemon. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's pretty funny and fair. So do you feel like at the time people were being a little more guarded, for example, with like information about how to make cash? Or do you feel like it's gone maybe in reverse? Obviously, there's more information out there. But do you feel like people now are more guarded, if you want to say that? Or is it the opposite?
2: no so i think that it's i think that it's honestly pretty open there's a lot of people who are really open about what they're doing like there's small nuances that a lot of people are keeping as you know their their tech but like small small details i feel like everyone understands what we're doing and everyone it's a pretty basic thing that's been going on for a long half time you know so it's 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 nothing crazy like that i think that there are a lot of nuances that specific people are doing and that they've, they've uh, created or figured out, I think that it's more so just small stuff like that, that than it is anything like uh, people hoarding SOPs and anything like back in the BHO days. I feel like that's when it was really, really guarded and nobody wanted to share any information was when people were making BHO back in the day and it was a lot more dangerous and stuff.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Had you already been washing, let's call it privately, before you did that wash of the MK Ultra. Yeah. So
2: I had been doing small washes, nothing big like that, though. Yeah, because that was that was at the end of like 2018. And I started making hash in about 2016.
0: So speaking of nuances, would you be willing to share, I guess, one of the things that you feel in your practices, for example, that could be considered a nuance that you see as like a little extra something that you put on your process?
2: I would say probably the fact that I don't have like a cookie cutter wash method that I, as I'm like rehydrating material, I'm paying attention and I'm kind of like on the fly changing, uh, like my rehydration times and stuff like that. And, uh, it's not just, you know, throw it in, get going, smash through it. I would say that like that small amount of attention to detail, just cause I do wash like really small amounts, like 6,000, 6,500 gram at a time. So like it's 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 small batch and it's attention to detail in my opinion like i'm right there the whole time right you know paying attention to every detail that i possibly can trying to trying to make it as high quality of a product as possible
0: would you say that in part that comes down to like observation being present and then the other thing it sounds like is like you're reacting to instead of applying like a sop like you said earlier or a certain methodology of like we're washing for this long we're hydrating for this long it's like you're more going with what the material is telling you
2: yeah absolutely and if it if i'm doing multiple if i have you know twenty thousand grams of, of garlic juice so to speak like i'm not gonna necessarily pay that attention every single time i i understand what that plant is, needs for me and i can so to speak, make an SOP and do it batch to batch like that. But yeah, on every single phenol, on every single different thing that I'm washing, like I'm going to be paying attention to that. And that's something that I feel like, and that's not necessarily just with rehydration too. Like I try to use that same methodology with with every step of my
1: extraction.
0: So speaking of the garlic juice, I brought it up at the beginning because that's what you competed with Mm -hmm. last year. And that's still part of your stable. But interestingly enough, I believe it's the first strain that you actually hunted through with the specific idea of making hash with it.
2: Yeah, man, that's, that's my girl right there. I love that plant so much. Like I've gotten so many compliments from so many hash makers about how much they enjoy the smoke on that. You're right, man. That is, that is the first seed pack that I ever popped with the intention of making hash out of it. And and it was
1: couldn't have been a better choice. Like, it's amazing. Like, I, I love that plant so much. What are the, some of the things you love about it? Man,
2: it is a it's it's one of the only plants I've ever had that everybody enjoys it. There's nobody that's like, you know, you crack a jar of GMO and it's not even 50-50. You get a bunch of people who just don't even want to fucking smell it. But you cr- you got some people who crack a jar of, you know, trop. And then they're going to feel the same way about it. But with the garlic juice, man, like I feel like even if it's offensive, they're dipping their nose back in for another sniff of that because it's just such an intense smell. Like it's so unique and I've, I've never had anything like it. I've had a bunch of garlic juice from a bunch of different producers and like it's fire. But like it's I feel like ours is such a unique cut. I had, I had three different phenos of that that I wanted to keep, but I just don't have the space for that and I wanted to be able to keep hunting. So like I had to cut it down. Like it was such a fire pack, man. And I remember it was Oni and Harry collabed on that one and then they re-released it and it just wasn't hitting the same. I got a second pack of it and tried to find more and it just wasn't, it wasn't as good. Like
1: that first drop that they did of it, like there was some special juice in there, man. Like, oof. Would you describe it as like a, pretty balanced
0: blend of what you think of those two flavors for example the GMO and the papaya or is it a blend but then it creates something unique of its own so it's I I like to say it's like a 50-50
2: blend but it doesn't give it enough justice to say that because it's not your typical GMO blend it doesn't have any type of like a dirty sock or anything like that it gives it it's almost like uh i've had people like uh say it's like dmt man it's like shoot like burnt rubber not halitosis but like insane gas to it like almost like kerosene and dmt with papaya on top and it's just so fire man like
1: the garlic juice is the goat for me like it's it i love it so you mentioned having limited space and you also mentioned. For example, in this case,
0: finding three phenos that you wanted to keep and having to scale that down to one, I'm assuming, because of the lack of space. How do you do that? How do you decide which one?
2: So I ran it a couple times, ran them all a couple of times at this point, indoor and outdoor. So I'd hashed them all a couple of times, indoor and outdoor at this point. So I'm basing it on hash yield, on indoor and outdoor at the same time i'm basing it on hash yield plant yield for biomass because it's all going whole plant fresh frozen so plant yield hash yield ratio of what heads are being pulled from that hash yield to make sure that it's not smaller heads and then flavor quality and uh just overall smoke at the end point there but it's all coming down to it because i don't do any dry flower i don't do anything like that so it's it for me like it all comes down to the end smoke the quality of that and then how much the plant produces if they're all if the end smoke on all three is exceptional then i'm going to look at how much they're yielding on biomass and how much they're yielding as far as hash numbers that's less important to me uh, a lot of the stuff that i select doesn't it, it wasn't the highest yielder through the hunt it's typically the best flavor and the best medicinal effects for it and the best like, uh, potency. Like those are the things that I'm really looking for on a hunt more so than the yield. You know, we can, we can run GMO and we can run cookies and cream if we need some, some yield bumps, but like, I'm looking for things past that. And then, uh, also like, uh, something that I look for is like, is it a plant that can mix? I like to do some cool mixes with, with my washes. If I have, I like to do individual washes and if I have leftovers, I like to do cool little mixed washes. So like, is it something that's going to mix well? Like I've had, I've had plants that just really didn't, they didn't mix well. Like they would bring weird, weird nuances that weren't noticeable on an individual wash, but then they would like muddy it up almost on a mixed wash. So like small nuances like that I'm kind of looking for on the selection tube. I'm picky, but I'm I'm really small too. It's I you know, I don't have any of these big I don't have a big ass farm or anything like that. It's a few small indoors
1: and then seasonally I'll do a couple greenhouses out back. On these blended washes, for example, it's always washing the
0: material together, not doing like post rosin or post hash combinations.
2: No, no, I've never been a fan of mixing it as hash and squishing it together, or mixing rosin together. I've always preferred to. Uh, it's it's a more uh, like a better blend if it's if it's washed together. In my opinion, it's just like completely. I don't know if it's the right term, but like emulsified, like it's it's blended together well. I've always preferred to wash them that way.
0: Okay, cool. So yields, because we always have to talk about yields. You mentioned a few interesting things here, like you're not going with the high yielder. So let's go a different way about this. What is an unacceptable yield for you? Even if the terps are amazing.
2: Below two percent, man. Like if it's one and a half percent in my in my 90 bag, it's gotta be exceptional. I'll keep it if it's crazy, like that. If the, the rainbow belts we were talking about, if it if that one had been at like a one and a half percent, I'd have kept it. But it was a half percent, so she's gone. 2% is honestly like my comfortable level of of like what I would like to see. I, a lot of people are like 7%, 6% and all this. I'm like, I'm not, I don't need the, like the biggest yields. Like as long as it's quality heads that are getting in these jars, like that's my main concern. And th- that's not to say that that high yields are a bad thing. You know, I'll take, I'll take high yielding, high quality heads all day long, but that's not,
0: that's not the determining factor for me. Okay. How many of those have you found, for example, through the gear that you ran? Have you found things that are super chirpy, super fire and super high yielders?
2: Not a ton of them, but yeah, I've definitely found a few. Rambutan, the garlic juice, um, and the banana bucket. That one, the banana bucket and the banana pez, both those finos are super fire of the grease bucket. And those ones both yield really well. You had a couple of the The trop smash melons from the Bloom Gear that I popped yields well. Like I've got a few of them that yield really well that also are really good high quality
1: heads too. And by well, if you had to define it with numbers, what would that be? Like four plus percent in the 90U bag.
2: Well, the 90 and the 120 together.
1: Okay, that was one of my follow-up questions
0: is what is a yield to you? Or the better question maybe is what does the yield consist of for you
2: so i'm i'm only really calculating on my numbers my 90 through my 149 those are those are the heads that i
1: really care about so when you say 4% it's 4% landing in that specific range yeah and out of
0: curiosity what's the highest you've seen in that range
2: the highest i've seen in that range was some super super full-term GMO
1: that was, it was just over 6% in the 90 bag. That one was super stinky. Going back to
0: the garlic juice, you said part of the way that you figured out which one you wanted to keep is you ran some inside, which is I think your main thing, but you also have a small greenhouse that you run them outside and that's not really your thing, but it plays a role in how you're analyzing the resin. Talk to us about how the outdoor versions of the mostly indoor plants affect your interpretation of the quality of the resin. So with all of my
2: stuff that I'm growing outdoor, it's, it's kind of dual suiting me. It's, it's to see if the plant does grow well outdoor. Cause I like to do a little bit of outdoor each season, you know, but it's also to, to help me weed out a weak plant. If, it, if I have a plant that's growing equivalent indoor, but then I put them outdoor and pheno A is outgrowing phenol B by 50%, then that's a superior plant to me. If they're checking equal boxes along the way otherwise. So it's not necessarily a deciding factor in the forefront, but if I have if I have to weed these groups down, I'm using these as aspects to look at it and make sure that they still have high quality resin outdoor, that they're still going to have, you know, they're going to be terpy. Like I, I have to make sure all of these things because I do run a little bit of outdoor in my greenhouses. So I want to be able to make sure that I'm not going to, you know, throw a couple plants out here and get, a completely different outcome than what I had predetermined so that's that's more
0: so what I'm using those for now in regards to for example the quality of the resin have you seen a difference between the outdoor versions and the indoor versions of the same plants resin oh yeah
2: oh yeah I've seen it go in both directions too I've seen some plants that I've hunted from seed outdoors that I bring indoors and it's a completely different plant, just does not, does not want to grow the same way I did before, you know, completely different tastes different. And then I've also had plants that I absolutely love indoors and I'll bring them outside. And it's just like, wow, this, this space could have been so much better utilized. Like I remember running my AJ Sour indoor versus outdoor back to back. And I was just like, what is happening here, man? This was such a bad decision. Like, literally one of my favorite rounds of indoor I've ever ran. And then outdoor, I was
1: just like, I was, I was pissed, bro. I was pissed. So I'll just leave it at that. Like she didn't, she didn't love the Oregon summer.
0: So do you feel based on this experience that there are genetics that are better suited for one or the other? And some may have that crossover.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I feel like it may also just be, if we dig a little deeper, it could potentially even just be that they are plants that came from a different region that are more reacting to the climate from my indoor, from my outdoor, because that's more so what they were actually bred from as like their land race genetic. It could be something, something like that. And it could just be that plants really just hate indoor or outdoor, you know, depending on where you're at, you know, Michigan summers, Oregon summers, like... It's all, it's all different, man. So like, it, there's, there's a whole lot of things that come into play in that sense. So like, yeah, I don't have enough information to really make a real educated guess on that, but I have a lot of guesses on
0: what I think it could be.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean,
0: like I say all the time, I think all we have at this point is people's experience. And so it's always interesting to get people's outlook from people that are actually out there doing these things
1: uh, and seeing the results and then getting their analysis basically on it. Yeah, the, the average people definitely don't see what we see. Do you ever use any of that greenhouse resin for the brand?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have some really exceptional resin come out of the greenhouses. Not to say all of it's used for the brand, though. There's a lot of resin that ends up getting completely just like, dude, I've tossed a lot of resin just literally into the compost. If it can't serve a purpose as making it in the jar if it can't serve a purpose as helping patients who aren't picky if it can't serve a purpose as making it for food grade I've had stuff that doesn't check any of those boxes and at that point it's just literally going to
0: the compost do you put the outdoor resin through a more rigorous trial than the indoor resin before it goes out in jars no
2: it's it's pretty much the same. It's pretty much the exact same. It's gonna get tested by me, it's gonna get left out, it's gonna get beat up. I have a few friends that I'll ask opinions from. Nothing out of the ordinary between the two though. It's gonna be the pretty much the exact same methodology when I'm putting it into the
0: jars. Speaking of opinions, you mentioned last time to me that you do have like a small group of people that you trust, including your wife and yourself and some friends. But that part of the reason that you trust it in part is because you guys are hash smokers and you're smoking a lot of high quality resin in that you value the opinion because of where it's coming from. How important do you think that is for people as like a maker to have people that can give you this feedback, for example, that you do value? I think it's priceless, man. Like if
2: you have if you don't have true heads smoking your product and being able to R and D it with you and just sit there and just like hash it out and just talk to you about what's going on and be like this is smacking this is definitely not like this like why is this on the table right now bro like you should not be putting this in the jar like you know what i mean like there's there's so much that needs to be talked about before product is just put in a jar and sent to distribution and and like it it just can't like you have to be extremely adamant about what you're putting in those jars like it, it and for me like there's a very select few people that I trust on that level to like sit there and try these products. I'm very very strict about what goes into my jars. Like this is a very small operation, man. Like it's 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 very close to home for me and like I worked my ass off to get here. Like I don't want to put anything out there that's going to make someone ever pick a tree city jar up and be like, "Oh, I don't I don't need to try this anymore." This doesn't this doesn't fit my smoking profile. Like if someone's like Oh, this is super fire, but you know, this is like a, a this is a different tier than what I want to smoke. Like that's that's okay. Like I I can understand. There's budgets. There's you know there's different terps for different perps. Like that's all that's okay. But if if someone were to grab a jar and crack it and be like, ugh, that would break my heart, dude. Like I would be so bummed out. Like I'm not trying to put out anything that isn't going to sit on my table and get smoked by me personally. And I know that I'm a very picky smoker. And I know I have a few friends who are also very picky smokers. So like passing jars to that crew is like, it's priceless to me, man. I feel like everyone needs to have their own little crew of heads that they can pass their jars to and not just get gassed up either. Like I don't, I don't want people to ever be like, yes, this is it. This is it. And have it just be okay. Like I need true people that I can actually take their words and know that they're not,
1: they're not holding anything back. Right, yeah, I'm sure because that's part of what is of value in that sense, I suppose. absolutely.
0: bringing this into context with the you know small greenhouse and the outdoor resin you and I talked about this last time is how depending on who you're asking and who you're talking to, I feel like sometimes the indoor resin there is this like connotation that it's like a, a better product to some people and On the other side, where sun-grown or outdoor resin might not necessarily fit that box for the same person or other people. So, you brought up something kind of funny where you've had instances where you've given people jars of, for example, sun-grown stuff, knowing that it was, knowing that they know that it isn't, and had them try it and see
1: their reaction. How has that experience gone for you? Man, literally, like, they can't tell, bro. They can't tell. Like
2: fire resin is fire resin. Like it's so funny to hear people say that stuff. Like it's just quality resin is quality resin is the way it needs to be looked. Like you can't, you can't put it in a box and just say that like this indoor is better. There's so many people that are bringing cardboard turps to the market with like this quote unquote fire indoor. And like, it's just not the same. It's just not the same. Like if you're growing resin full sun, full term, you can bring the most fire product ever to the table. Like just the best award winning full sun, but it can also be the opposite. You can bring that exact same quality from indoor. It needs to be how it's being produced. It needs to be how, like, how, what's your attention to detail? Like what's your SOP? Like how clean is this? Like there's a lot of stuff that comes into play And it's not just like, was this grown inside of a building or was this grown outside of a building or was it grown in a greenhouse? Like it's not that simple, man. Like there's so many people who are just absolutely killing full sun. So like my jars, like, I don't differentiate. It doesn't say full sun or it doesn't say, you know, greenhouse or it doesn't say indoor. It doesn't, there's not a price variation because in my eyes, high quality resin is high quality resin. And it's, that's how it's being brought. Like that's, and that's, that's the way I look at it. And man, if anyone hears this and they have a different opinion, feel free, shoot me a message and let's chop it up and let's talk about it. Because in my opinion, resin is resin and it needs to be viewed as resin. Like you can tell me it's indoor. You can tell me it's sun. I I love to have as much information presented as possible. That's valid information to have while judging it. But I'm not going to judge your sun-grown resin more harshly because it was grown in the sun or think less of it because it was grown in the sun. I'm going to appreciate it for what it is and and I'm going to judge it on what it is, just like I will from an indoor farm. I've had amazing resin from both places and I've grown amazing resin in both places. So I I feel like for me personally, it's going to be the same when it's in the jar. That's just the way it is in my
1: opinion though.
0: Yeah, I think it's a fair opinion, man. And I mean, likewise... I don't usually put a lot of like personal thought out there, but I've had great of both, you know, like sun, sun growing resin sometimes can be like the best dude. It's super and super strong. And then some of the indoor is, is likewise. So I would say it's hard to say. I just, it's interesting to talk about and see what people think about resin, you know, and where it comes from and how that, Correlates or relates to quality.
2: One little, uh, one little thing I can notice from uh, from hunting indoor and outdoor. I have thrown more genetics that presented themselves better outdoor than they did indoor, and because the majority of my growing is being done indoor, that's what I was looking for at the time. And I've I have tossed more genetics that looked better and yielded better and tasted better outdoor than indoor than I have. Toss Genetics that did amazing indoor and subpar outdoor. So, I mean, it's just my just my look at it, but I think, out, I think the sun is unbeatable. I think that the sun is amazing. And as long as it's done well, full sun can be just absolutely phenomenal.
0: Yeah, I don't do it. So it's hard for me to say, but it sounds like it's hard on both sides. They both have their own challenges and they both have their pros and cons. You know, outdoor, you, you have all the elements. And indoor, you have a lot of different other variables as well. So I think like you're saying, either way, resin can be fire. Uh, it's just about the person doing it. And it sounds like you guys definitely go through, I think rigid is the word you, you use, a you know, kind of thorough process to put out the resin that you feel needs to go out regardless of
1: where it came from.
2: Absolutely. It's always going to be our main focus is just on the quality. And, and that's going to be something that we're going to be extremely rigorous about when we're testing. And it's just something we're going to be sticklers about, too.
0: And I think what's the funny part is that comes from you just liking to smoke a bunch of weed and like liking to smoke good weed. And so that's, you're almost like the person who's setting the benchmark for the quality of the product that you're putting out. Absolutely, man.
2: Absolutely. It's gotta be it's gotta check the boxes. If it can't meet the standard to stay on the sesh table, like it doesn't belong in my packaging. Like it has to it has to has to has to be able to be up to that quality and standard. Like if me and the homies aren't satisfied with it, I'm not gonna make it because at the end of the day, like this brand that I've spent this time building up, like that's a direct reflection of me. Like that's not anybody else. That's not the that's not the homies that are helping helping me sample these jars. Like it's a direct reflection of me. So like I would never want a subpar product to go out like that. Like it's just
1: something that I just have to be so stern about. Yeah, I, pre- I think that's pretty fair. You down for another smoke? A- break? Absolutely.
0: Shout out to our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find everything you need to make rosin, whether that's the best deal in hash in their affordable and reliable full mesh wash bags, or in Rosin Evolution's high-grade rosin bags, which are trusted by makers all over the nation, from small batch to commercial. They've got you covered with their amazing customer service that gets you what you need, when you need it. So if you press rosin or you wash hash, grab everything you need at rosinevolution.com. And to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, the number 710, again, T-H-I-710, all together, saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So talk to me a little bit about naming phenols because when we spoke last time, you said you switched from giving them numbers like sometimes people do to giving them names what's the reason
2: so the main reasoning behind that is just a little bit better representation of what that pheno is i was so when i was doing it by numbers i would have people confusing specific phenos with specific numbers and they would give me more of like what the profile was on it and so then i was like all right well if i just present these as but my profile is interpreting it as on the initial product review and testing phase. Like I can get an easier review from, from patients at that point because they know exactly what to call it. And there's no confusion or transposing of numbers. And it's just a lot more straightforward for me. So it does a little bit of disjustice to the genetic or to the breeder of the genetic. But, uh, I feel like for me and, and for my hunting purposes and stuff like that, it's been super helpful.
0: To, to just be able to distinguish a lot easier. So, for example, I believe one of the products that I've tried from you, which was really good, by the way, it was your Banana Pez. And yeah. And that, that Banana Pez came from a pack of grease bucket. So yes, yes. So, I'm curious, like, from that, I think you still have a couple different ones outside of that Banana Pez. How do you yeah. come to... For example, naming it banana pez versus what the other two phenols of that grease bucket may be.
2: So it's just it's just me having fun and really getting to to know it while I'm smoking it and then what my interpretation is and what the wife's interpretation is, and, and we'll kinda sit here and brainstorm while we're smoking after the kids go down and stuff and just kinda look at our notes on what each one's smoking like and uh and it's it's just kind of a, a fun little time to get a get creative and come up with some fun names for stuff that really get a showcase what the plan is. Cause breeders can name us some weird stuff, man. Like the sex Panther. Oh oh man. That one is so fire, but like Canarado bred it as. Garlicimo, which is just like a really weird name. And, and anything with gar garlic, people are really hesitant because they're like, Oh, it's GMO mixed wash. Like, I don't want that. So like, bro, People absolutely love the Sex Panther. And if I call it Garlissimo, like I can like see that like I got jars left. So like going from Garlissimo number one to Sex Panther was like huge. Like that was, that was like, dude, everyone loves the name and now they're all cracking the jars and everyone's blown away by the smoke on it because they're giving it a chance now. And they're not just judging a book by its cover because it has garlic or uh, GMO in it. Sorry. So like, I feel like it really gives you, it gives you a better chance to, to let the patients know what's in the jar before they crack the jar in a sense. Like,
1: yeah. And it's also interesting to me,
0: and you said this at the beginning of this question, that it gives you a better kind of understanding of their perception of the resin. There isn't as much confusion as being like, oh, that was number 11, or it's like pretty clear to be like, well, this is the banana pez, this is that. And so you know internally what these are. These are phenols of this, but it gives you kind of a better way to organize the feedback or the data that you're getting from people consuming it. Yeah, exactly.
2: And it's not that there's any kind of like, secrecy or anything either anytime anyone asks i always let them know exactly what things are whether it be a mixed wash or a specific renamed pheno so because i also like to name my own mixed washes too so i'm always open anyone who slides into my dms knows that i'm an open book and i'll chat with you guys and, and let them know exactly what's in what and what i'm smoking on what my favorites from the drops are what you might prefer based on what you like like i talk to people about all sorts of stuff man like they're always asking questions about smoke so being being like I said, like I'm ahead above everything else. So like I just love to sit there and just chat with them and let them know what's hitting for me. It's cool, man. It's 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 another level of like almost hanging out but not hanging out. Like you still get to sit there and chat terps with people, but like it's just like quick little DMs and shit like that. Like it's it's fun though. Like I don't know. I love talking terps with anyone.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think honestly going back to like the live event thing, that's one of the things that I see people get a lot of joy out of is, you know, we all live, I don't want to call it isolated lives, but we live our own lives and everybody's kind of doing their thing. And then you get to come together in this kind of concentrated form and spend a couple of days with people that are just as passionate and you literally just get to chop it up and like share turfs and see turfs. And like, I think that there's a really big joy to that. So I could see that how that would be like the, the digital version of that. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man being able to chop it up and and just like shoot the shit on terps is literally like the coolest thing ever, man, sharing jars, passing jars back and forth, like it's like what I was saying about having that that close group of friends, man, like being able to sit there and talk terps is like that's therapy, man, like I love that, and then being able to do it on a level like you were mentioning at the jacket like dude, that was just like that's therapy for the soul right there, man, that was amazing being able to sit there and talk to that many different heads and chop it up and pass jars around and smell jars and It was just, it was such an amazing atmosphere, bro. Like, I can't wait to see what the future holds for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, me
0: too. It's a little nerve wracking, but I'm excited as well. So let's shift over to the hash making a little more. You said that you started learning, you know, from buddies locally who were doing it well. And I think that began with you actually getting bubble, pressing it into rosin, right? So you were pressing the rosin before you were actually washing and then you got into the washing and, I'm curious how much that has changed for you from then to now. Like, is there a big shift in your technique? Is it pretty similar And also your environment? So the environment's
2: been the biggest change, man. When I first started washing, it was just like, literally just out in the shop, nighttime, no cold room, no AC, no nothing. But like, that's like, dude, that was, that was a trip, honestly. Like looking back at, at how far it's came is like, That's a big, that's a big change. But like, as far as the tech goes, man, like it's progressed as far as the nuances and my knowledge level on it. But I haven't, like, haven't, me and my wife are really small scale. So like, I haven't invested in like Osprey or, or anything like that yet. I keep it simple. It's all, I use a bubble magic, bro. Like, it's small scale. It's all right there in front of me. It's easy peasy, bro. I keep it simple. I got a new cold room put together at my house so I can, I can balance life easier having the kids and stuff that way. So I got a nice, got the whole garage converted to my cold room. Got it all built out in there, how I like it. have enough space for all my
0: freezers. Cool. This is something I've never asked anybody, but how, what goes into like, for example, in your case, the insulation of
1: the garage, was there anything that you did to keep it, I guess, from getting the cold, getting out of it? Lots of insulation board.
2: I had to I had to reframe off a few sections so that I could still have room for freezers and stuff. But yeah, lots of insulation, big old AC in there. So speaking about the bubble magics,
0: are you using one or are you using multiple?
2: I have three full setups that I use on like a full size wash. But if I'm pheno hunting, I'll have like all three staggered so I can have three phenos going at the same time and just stagger them and wash through as one spinning pull one out, rinse it, isolate it. Then the second one's done, kind of bounce through it like that. But if I'm doing like a 6K wash, 6,500K wash, then I'm going to do all three at the same time. And uh, whether it's a mixed wash or single pheno
1: or single strain, then uh, all three at the same time. And what size are these Bubble Magics again? Uh, I believe they're, it's just a
2: basic one. I believe it's like a 20 gallon.
0: Okay, cool. So all together, it'd be about 60 gallons when you're doing a full wash, for example, with one strain, like you said. Yeah, I believe so. And the staggering is pretty interesting. Do you find that outside of, for efficiency sakes, it's gives you kind of a, a visualization right on site of how this resin looks compared to the one that you just pulled and then compared to the one that you just pulled? So does it give you that reference?
1: Yeah,
2: it gives you that immediate side-by-side reference. I mean, immediate a relative term. It's 15, 20 minutes between. Right. But you, you you get to see it right there side-by-side. And that, that may change once you dry it, because I have a lot of heads that will look significantly less on the tray after you pull it. But then after drying, it's significantly more because they're just big, juicy heads that hold a lot more mass to them. So it's, it can be misleading at times. But yeah, it gives you a really good initial side-by-side comparison between
0: visual and then uh, obviously the smell, too. And going back to talking about yields and, and the ranges that you're mostly looking for, what are the range of bags that you're using in collecting this resin? Are you breaking it all down like from 220 to 190 or, you know, whatever sequence you use? Or are you just using like a 90U bag that catches that through the 149 or through the
1: 120 at times?
2: So I'll have the 220 in to keep it clean in case there's any plant matter or anything. And then I have the 150 in there also, just in case anything gets through. But also, if, in case there's any 150 heads, I'll usually smoke that for the head. And then I have my 90 and then my 40. And then I just do all my separation on the trays from there.
0: You mentioned having a little melt in your fridge. Do you ever pull for melt? And if so, do you do it any differently?
2: Do I like uh? Do I change my methodology at all if I'm washing strictly for half
0: for like six star? In regards to like the specific bags that you're using,
2: no, I would probably throw my one twenty back in there if I'm if I plan on doing something special for like an entry or something like that, just to further isolate. But uh, as far as going to mar- market or anything like that, no, I, I wouldn't. I find that those heads are are typically at least. With, I guess with the exception being, if it's something that is, is being hunted, that's presenting itself differently during the wash, if it looks like I need to pull the 120 out or something like that, you know, then I'll do that on the fly, but
1: not, not typically speaking.
0: Okay, cool. What is a typical wash size for you? That may vary, but in the case of when you said you use all three machines because it's like one variety or something, what is the amount of fresh frozen in there? typically shoot for like 6000 uh it changes
2: it changes depending on the bud structure if it's a more loose larpy bud then it's going to be a lower amount cuz i try not to we try to be really careful with our harvesting process to not smash anything down not load bags super full anything like that so if it's a really loose bud then we're going to fit noticeably less it might be like a 5500 gram wash or like a you know, just under 6K. Whereas if it's a really dense one, it's going to take a little more rehydration time, but it's also going to be a lot more in the wash. It's going to be more, you know, like a 6,700 gram wash, maybe 7K even. So there, there is changes in it in that sense. But typically my, my spot that I shoot for is about 6,000 grams.
0: Okay, cool. And that actually brings up a good point is you mentioned to me last time, I believe it's your ice cream diesel that you run at times that is really fire but you mentioned it has a very kind of airy nug structure to it versus something like the garlic juice which i believe you told me has a very compact versus. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the hydration point is interesting in that you know you feel like you need to hydrate the dense ones more do you also break down those denser buds more for the washes versus for example an airier or larfier one
2: yeah, absolutely. When we're when we're in the harvesting phase, all of the really dense stuff is getting broken down into smaller smaller chunks, uh, just to really expose the surface area on it more, since it's so much tighter. the The same nug next to like the ice cream diesel of garlic juice is going to be twice the weight. So I I try to break that down more to expose more of the surface area, and not to say that we're leaving big buds in there and washing like you know it's like. The tip of your thumb is, is typically what I'm going for on bud size. If it's something that's really dense, I'm going to take it down a little more than that to like thumbnail size. I don't like having anything big in there, no sticks, no stems. I'm really particular about
1: what's getting into the wash.
0: When you do the wash using all three machines, doing that one strain, do you collect these all like at the same time
1: in the same set of bags? Or how does that look? Yeah, it's, I'm collecting them all sequentially. And then they're all being isolated together at the same time. And
0: in regards to your wash times or your wash cycles, what's kind of a typical look for you?
2: So depending on, on what I'm washing, some strains, like uh, they'll get beat up a little bit faster. So I have to, I have to pull them out earlier. But typically speaking, it's going to be a six-minute spin for me for my first wash. And then probably about an eight-minute spin for the second wash. But there is a little bit of variance in there if something... On some of the real dense stuff I've noticed, I, it, I'll i give it a little bit extra on the second spin, but typically I'd say about six minutes and eight minutes.
0: Okay, cool. And then does that also kind of rely on, like you're saying, your, like you called it earlier, or I called it, uh, your kind of reactionary style of being like, I need to look at, see what the water is looking like. Because I, I know one thing you brought up to me is, you feel like, for example, chlorophyll has a very certain look And you definitely don't ever want to hit that point where you start seeing that in the water. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Very, I like that reactionary term. That's a, I like that. It's a, it's exactly what it is though, man. Like it's, it's being aware of the surroundings and being aware of, of everything happening. I'm, I'm really aware of that. I don't like any kind of chlorophyll getting in. Like, uh, it's really important to just be there, be aware of what's going on with the machines, what's going on with the, with the heads
1: and just, always trying to keep it all as, as proper as possible.
0: And then as far as what's going into the jars, is that coming off those washes that you mentioned earlier being respectively six and eight minutes? Or is there anything else going into it? And Or is there an additional wash as well to that? I guess is the question.
2: Yeah, so there's a third wash after that, but I haven't really found a purpose for that yet. So I kind of just have a lot of back stock. What goes into the jars right now is first and second pull. So it's that first six minute spin. And then it's that second spin as well. That's going to be roughly eight minutes. And that's my 90 through my 149. So that's without having the 120 u bag in there, as long as it's been a tested strain. And that's, that works really well for me. I feel like it's, it's kind of like the honey hole of quality product with, with what I've hunted through. Sometimes I have to make adjustments if it's new hunting stuff, but like with what, with what I've hunted, that's some really quality spots. And I do I do have my adjustments strain to strain, you know, that I have to make, but it's a lot of detail to
0: go into. <laughs> a lot of notes. What are some of the aspirations with that third wash? Although you maybe haven't found a home for it, if you want to call it that.
2: I'm hoping I can figure out some good uh cart tech, man. I want to get some some vapes loaded up with some of that if possible. Like I feel like all of my first second is Too good to put into pens. I don't like pens too much personally. Like they're they're a convenience item, so I wouldn't want to put that in there. But I feel like that third is it's the first pull forty through eighty nine, so it's got the seventy u in there, and then it's the third pull full spec forty through one forty nine. So like it's still quality resin. Like a lot of people include third pull in their jars, but it's just not where I want my jars to be. But I feel like it would be super dank. Specifically, certain strains I I can think of that would be super dank in pens if I could like. I've got I've got good tech down to figure it out, but it's nothing that I'm like just really impressed with. I hear people talking about some cool stuff that I'm gonna try out some some sous vide tech and some weird shit, but nothing that I've been able to figure out and dial in. I've done a lot of like uh, edible collabs and stuff like that with it, which is always super fire. I get a lot of comments about how like how dank it is. So like all the edible collabs are really cool but like nothing nailed down solid yet on it.
0: And when you're doing edibles, are you looking for like a certain type of collab or a certain type of product? Have you ever done any in-house?
2: Me and the wife have, have done some in-house stuff, but we've never released anything. It's all, it's always more so just like R&D and trying it out for ourselves and for a couple friends. But when I'm working with other people, I'm looking for, quality companies that I that uh I've either heard good word of mouth about or that I've had their product and it's good quality product. And yeah, that's pretty much all I'm looking for. It's I don't I'm not too picky. I, I like to do collabs with people as long as it's it's good people and good companies and good business. That's something that I really love to do
1: actually is is meet new people and do some cool collabs. So going back to the carts, is it also in part due to hardware or is it mostly just
0: about getting the tech to where you want it to be? So it's hugely
2: in part due to hardware. Like I've had a, I've had a really, really hard time circling around through the industry, trying to figure out what hardware is going to work best. But I feel like I've found a few good ones that are working well for me. And at this point I kind of just got a, for me personally, I have a few things I want to figure out and I don't, and this could be still be a hardware issue and not a tech issue, but I feel like halfway through the pen, I'm getting like a a burnt taste, and I don't know if it's on my end or if it's on the hardware's end. But it's something that I I just can't bring to to market like that on good conscience, knowing that like I'm sitting here smoking, dude. I'll smoke like six pens with me and my wife because they're super convenient right before we run into jujitsu. So like we always have a couple on us, and like it's it's just every single time, man. Like and you know I'm not trying to put anyone under the bus or anything, but like these little these pens are just like. Really, really like kind of, I don't know. I feel like that's what it is, but it also could be the tech. It also could be the tech. I can't, I can't, you know, disregard that possibility too.
0: I was going to actually ask, you mentioned earlier, often on the pen before going into jujitsu. Are those your own pins that you're smoking? The, like the R&D?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, so I pass a lot of them out to like random people at the gym, hit me up for them. So I'll pass a lot to those people. And that's where it gets a little bit difficult because no one at the gym that trains uh, where I train is like on that level of smoking where like I'm going to use that opinion. Like not to say anyone is like incompetent, but like I just wouldn't necessarily put their opinion up there when I'm making uh, product choices for the company. So that's something that has been like it's helpful in the sense that people get the product and they can give me a review like, hey, this died on me halfway through or tasted kind of funny halfway through or something like that. But like, uh, I take that with a grain of salt, but there's also like a lot of friends in the industry and stuff like that, that I can pass them to and get opinions from there. A consensus seems to be like the unit that I'm using isn't the greatest one like these, but I did get a new one that I'm pretty stoked to fill up a few on and try them out. I'm gonna load some garlic juice up into these ones. And, and, uh, I know, I know the garlic juice smokes super fire. So I think that one should be a really good representation in there and see how these new ones work out.
0: Just because I've heard this hardware kind of scenario from quite a few people and people don't feel like it's quite there. I also want to put into perspective maybe that a lot of the people that I speak to are focusing on this really high-grade product like yourself, right? And so I don't know necessarily that the hardware yet is being made for this really high-grade material versus more, you know, generalized material. (laughs) to put it lightly, I guess. Um, So I wonder if at some point, yeah, the hardware will catch up with like the higher end because that also becomes part of the high-end experience, right? Is like the the product has to match the cart and the cart has to match the product also.
2: It really does. Like you, you have to be able to have it match the quality levels or else it's an inferior product and it's something that you can't really put out with good conscience, so. I feel like that's a perspective that I've never really considered on, on the the cart race. And I feel like that is actually a really, really good perspective, a really valid point that I hadn't looked into at all. I feel like there, there certainly will be a catching up time because some people are doing it right with like portable devices, like Puffco with their proxies and stuff like that. And the peak. So like, I feel like there is going to be a catch up point where the market hits and it's just going to be a frenzy, kind of like when the Puffco dropped, and there's just going to be these new devices that are available, and everyone's going to have carts available in them, and and that would be a really cool time, you know. If you find out before me, definitely let me know.
1: <laughs> For sure.
0: Do you use digital devices yourself outside of the the carts?
2: Yeah, man. I I have a little proxy and a peak. I, I use my proxy more. It's funny. I used to use my peak, but I never put water in it, and I would just take dry dabs out of it anyway because I accidentally. Me and the wife were driving on a trip to the coast one day and I was hitting the peak and then, uh, she got pulled over for speeding. So I threw the peak in her purse without thinking and it was full of water and dumped out, made a big ass mess in in her Louis purse. And, uh, she was not stoked about that. So after that, I've always been a dry dab guy when it comes to the peak. So when they dropped the proxy, I was just like, Oh yeah, the Sherlock style, that's money. So I scoop that up and I use that constantly, dude. Like it stays in the glove box in my car. It's just it's a staple, man. It's so convenient. It hits well. It's got good flavor representation. Like it doesn't burn the dabs up at all. Like I'll hit it on white mode, even dude. Like I I take hot rippers on it, and it's just still really good flavor representation. It doesn't get messy.
0: I love it. How do you feel like the effect translates? Is it for you can it ever be like taking a dab or is it just like you said this is a great convenient option for this but if you had the choice you would take the dab Oh, ten
2: 10 times out of 10 i'll take the dab over a, over an electric device and it's just a it's it's a convenience device like you were saying like it's really it's really nice for what it is but i would never reach for that over a rig and a torch like that's The delivery is just such a smaller scale for me. Like I'll sit there and I'll hit like three or four of them in a row before you know I go into class or before I go into a competition or something like that. Like it's just it's a completely different ball game.
0: Yeah, I feel I feel similar. I don't really use many of the electronics or any. So the the Dabs definitely get me where I need to be, I suppose. But they are certainly convenient for sure. Uh, I'll give I'll give them that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean if as long as you're looking at it in that regard, like they're they're doing the job. They're they're absolutely doing the job. Like I don't think they're there to replace anything, but they're just there to really uh, enhance the,
0: the smoke. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's definitely not like practical to be able to take tabs everywhere. So these things come in handy. On another note, I'm curious how your drying game changed. Because that's not something we really talked about at all. We've talked a lot about You know, getting the material to that point where you're processing. But did you start air drying? Did you start freeze drying right off the bat? What was your experience? Freeze dry cowboy out of the gate, man.
2: I have, I have fried air drying and it is far too tedious of a project for me to be able to do with the space that I have. I would love to be able to build out a bigger facility where I don't have my kids anywhere near it and do that. But Being as small as we are and operating out of my house most of the time, like one of my grows is at my house. My two greenhouses are at my house. Like I have my, my, uh, cold rooms at my house. Like it's, it's small, bro. Like my kids are running around and stuff. Like I can't be, I can't be leaving it out like that. Like there'd be one too many times and I'd have to take a kid to Goodwill or something like
0: just can't do that. Yeah. And so how do you feel like your freeze dryer
1: game has changed, if it has at all, since you started?
0: A lot less
2: L's. Man, Like once I figured out my tech, it really hasn't changed too terribly much. Like There's been small alterations to it and realizations that I need to make adjustments for specific things. But it really hasn't changed too terribly much once I actually figured out what I was doing and how to do it. I had some help from, from Barry's bubble and Tyler, uh, origin extracts on that as well. Like hunting through that and figuring that out, you know, in the, in the beginning when people were kind of, that was one thing that actually people were being kind of, I know we talked about not sharing a lot of information. That was one thing when we were all figuring out freeze dryers, it was, that was one thing that no one wanted to share the tech on once they figured it out. Like the homies did, but like, we we couldn't just be talking online like we would on the boards or anything like that and like have anyone respond with like helpful information so like it hasn't really changed that much though
0: what has been your experience with the hardware itself with freeze dryers good luck bad luck in between
2: kind of in between in the beginning i had a couple units that were going out on me repeatedly and then i upped Updated to a uh, pharmaceutical, and I haven't had a single issue with it since. I'm gonna reach for some wood right now to knock on, though. Yeah, man, it's, <laughs> been, it's been really good
1: to me since. Cool, well, that's good to hear for sure.
2: Yeah, I definitely understand why everyone has uh, has all the horror stories and the issues. Like, I had man, I had so many error screens pop up on me on my first machine, like detached uh, detached shelves, like all sorts of stuff, bro. It just haunts my nightmares. But I haven't had any issues in quite a
0: while. Cool, well, let's hope it stays that way. Absolutely. You down for another smoke break? Let's get it. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 52 with Jared of Tree City Sullivan and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including The Real Cannabis Chris, The Homie Big C, The Chile Relleno Burrito, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, Solventless AF and Rezon Reserve in Michigan, Garland in DC, David of Rosin Evolution, Nick the Intern, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Mackerel Melts in SoCal, Milwaukee J, and Turp Wizard in Michigan. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So we've talked about this in kind of roundabout ways, but let's talk a little bit about your cultivation and your cultivation practices and how. Those have developed. You mentioned in our prior conversation, they haven't changed all that much since you started cultivating in around 2015. Is that correct? 2000, and I think it was mid to end 2014 when I started my first garden. Cool. And so, yeah, just expand upon how that's changed, if it's changed, and maybe even talk about some of the genetics you were running back
1: then.
2: Back then, it was very, very cookie cutter go down to the grocery store, get a bag of soil, get a couple bottles of some nutrients as, as organic as I thought at the time, you know, come back and get going on it. Very, very simple. And then I've, I've gone through some different methodology. And what I've kind of figured out that best suits me and my wife right now is just, we amend our own soil. And then it's just straight water, hand fed. And that's it for our indoor, that's it for our outdoor pretty basic amendment list like it's nothing too crazy but it really works for us and it's kind of like a bare bones way that we're still able to get really quality really quality resin off the plants
0: so is this change from like cycle to cycle for example
2: so the the actual amendments in the soil is gonna be the same and the hand water is gonna be the same, but the amount of water going in is gonna be slightly different depending on which plants in there because some are just gonna have a faster uptake on their system than others. But it's all just it's all just in there, us in there every single day, eyes on the plants and addressing them as they need it. Cause like right now in the indoor that's out back that we just loaded up, like we've got Five different phenos of papaya power in there, some of the ice cream diesel, the banana pez, the banana bucket. So, like, we have a, we have a lot of different plants that are growing at different rates and that have different growth characteristics. So, it, 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 it's not as easy as just being able to have like a system that is all the same. Like, we're in there every single day, addressing each plant kind of individually, as a, in a sense.
0: Is that part of why you hand water? Or is it vice versa? Is it because you're already in there, you just rather do it that way?
2: It was a really easy way for us to keep things simple and to not have to to lean on any type of like synthetics or anything in that sense. And also to just, I I have a real like simplistic methodology with the plants. And like, I don't, I don't believe in overcomplicating it a lot. And it it really works well for what we've got going on. We're going to be in there either way, either way it's going to be less of a headache overall for us to to hand water each plant versus setting up a feed system for it to where it's auto-feeding. in because we have so many different things in there, it would be kind of a headache for me and in my, in my uh, limited knowledge to irrigate something like that on separate uh, systems for separate growth characteristics. So it's just a, we're always in there working on one thing or another. So it's just the
0: way we've cultivated our experience, I guess. Do you ever see yourselves kind of growing in, for example, canopy space, if you want to call it that, at any point? You mentioned, for example, you know, expanding the washroom to do possibly
1: like air drying. You could at some point. Is it an aspiration to grow your cultivation? I would love to get into bigger
2: facilities and to expand. It would be like that's definitely the goal. And I think I would absolutely love to look into some new methodology and figure out ways to expand that into a more streamlined method too while still keeping it really organic and not worrying about anything from a bottle or anything like that. Like as long as we're keeping it super simple and super clean, then that's like what's really important to me personally. I would love to get into a a bigger facility and just like, you know, auto-drip everything and just have different different rooms for different strains and monocrop each one so that I can have it in a super simple man- manner like that. But for my menu, like it's a very small, all my washes are really small and my I try to keep my menu, you know, like six, seven, eight strains on there at all times. So for for my limited space, like I have to run a lot of different gear. Without being able to expand, I can't, I can't really make it much easier than what I do right now, but it's okay because like I said, there's always something to
0: be done in the garden anyway. So it's like, we're, we're always going to be there. So you brought this up in the idea of the expansion, but do you think practices like hand watering, if you were to move into a bigger facility, wouldn't be practical like they are currently?
2: Not in the sense of just me and the wife doing it to expand to a, a bigger facility and keep it Small scale, like we are now. Like, I wouldn't want to do hand watering. <laughs> uh, that would be that would be a lot. That'd be a lot of a lot of work on the table with uh, our current schedule. Between we homeschool our boys, and then we also do jujitsu five nights a week. So it's it's a pretty hectic schedule. And then to try to hand water a whole another facility on top of that would be a lot. Now I would definitely want to set up drippers at that facility, and then. At that point, I would honestly probably monocrop the rooms at home too since there's more space on the table in that sense and just do trippers everywhere and just pay. But uh, until I get into a bigger facility, it's it's not too much of a hassle to be able to do with the the limited space that we have.
0: So that brings up an interesting point. You know, you're saying if you had a bigger facility, you would be able to approach this differently, whether it was monocropping or not. So with a limited space, how do you kind of toggle these different tasks of being able to buy new genetics in the phenol hunts, keep the ones you have, run the ones that you've been having, but also need to phase out and keep the menu current? How do you balance all that? <laughs> a lot,
2: a lot of work and ingenuity. I have a couple of friends that I passed my genetics to that also help me hold on to stuff and free up space in that sense while we're going through bigger hunts and stuff like that. So, I mean, realistically having a good, good group of friends that I can trust that they can help out. Like that's been, that's been a invaluable part of, of keeping genetics alive and being able to continue to hunt endlessly for, for the flavors
0: that we want. So speaking of what are some of your current flavors?
2: So some of the current flavors that I'm hunting through are, like I was mentioning a little bit earlier, the papaya powers, super stoked on those. And then we've got, man, I got these seeds at the jacket from Big Dog, third gen, and I'm super stoked on those. It took me a while to pop them, but I got a few females of those that I'm going through right now that are... uh to Dosey Papaya Skittles, it's Bop Gun times Z that he that he traded me for a jar of lap dance at the jacket. And I'm super stoked on those ladies to get those flipped. I'm actually gonna get the moms cut up on those and fill up a room. I gotta head to LA on Friday, but I imagine right when I get back from that, I'm gonna cut them up and try to get that room populated. Man, those the Dosey papaya Skittles, the papaya power. Those are two hunts that I'm super stoked on right now. And then I got a bunch of gear from Cam, uh, who uh, he laced me up with some Sour D times, Sour Amnesia BX, some Chem by Sour Amnesia BX, and some Chem like Chem by Sour Amnesia BX. So I'm hunting through all those right now. And then, let's see, I think that's all the seed gear that I have popped at the moment. But yeah, I'm really stoked on those dosi papaya Skittles. I feel like coming from the jacket, those ones are going to have some special some special juju
0: on them. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's funny that you traded for that lap dance because I think that's what you blessed me with. And it was really good, dude. And I remember uh, a buddy of mine and I, a good friend of mine, smoking it and being like, yo, this is strong, man. Like, you know, it would cut through other dabs and stuff. So... Uh, yeah, I, I remember that lap dance. Yeah, bro, that lap dance
2: is a banger. I really like that one. It's got the Purple Pebbles Turp to it, but then it's also just got some more to it. It's got some more power to it, like you were kind of mentioning. like I really enjoy that one. I got I got some of that in the room that I'm about to flip, to. I love the lap dance, bro.
0: How do you balance the type of turps that you're keeping on the menu? Like, yeah, you're going through all this stuff, but how are you like... Oh, we need like some banana or like, or, or does it not work like that? It's just like trying to find the most fire ones. And those are the ones that are going on the menu. And that's just how it's going to happen.
2: So it's, it's a balancing act, man. Like I have to have a lot of forethought into it, honestly, and a lot of planning going into it because I, like you're saying, you don't want to have a, a menu pop up and it's just like, for four different flavors of fruit and some Z, like you got to have some substance and, and stuff in there. So like it takes a lot of forethought being able to think ahead and plan rooms out and plan gardens out like that. Like it honestly is like one of my favorite parts though, is being able to look ahead and be like, yeah, these are going to balance out super well. Like right now, like the sour cream cake on this drop, bro, is so, so fire for gas smokers. Like it's really, really going to please a lot of people. And then we got some purple pebbles drop in. That's like, floral gas mix like just schmacking bro but then we also have the fruit side of things on the uh, the double banana on the the orange sherb pop like it's always a balancing act for me because i want to be able to appease everyone and i want people to see a menu and be like yeah I, i gotta try all of these like these are all coming from different areas like there's no overlap it's not GMO mixed with this, 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 and this. It's not three different flavors of trop. Like it's all very different, unique flavors when, when True City's dropping a menu. And I think that that's something that's really cool.
0: Yeah, I think it's really cool too. I think that you thinking about it and planning ahead for it as much as you can is definitely like a powerful thing, you know, because <gasps> <it definitely, laughs> uh, yeah, you're curating your menu to this degree, I think only gives people more options, which I think nowadays all people want is like a spectrum of options at all times, which is fair because there's a lot of stuff out there.
2: Absolutely, man. With like how many different hash makers are on the market and how many farms are collabing with different hash makers and stuff. There's a ton of overlap and like there's so many choices. If you don't have like a really powerful menu, then like it's it's easy to get kind of looked past. So it's something that I put a lot of focus into and it's, you know, try to control everything you can and let go of what you can't.
0: Do you ever foresee yourself getting rid of that garlic juice?
2: Oh, no, God forbid any type of crazy circumstances, but no, I would never willingly get rid of that. I've had a lot of different farmers ask me for it. I might pass it to a couple different people just to get it safe kept, but no, that one will never leave my garden.
0: Is there anything else in your stable that you feel the same about?
2: I feel like the lap dance has been growing on me to the point where I would probably never let go of that one either. And then other than those two flavors come and go. And I think I could live with losing anything else.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I think that that's telling in that some of the ones that are the ones like have an extra level to them than even the ones that you're considering winners currently they may be trumped by something else. And then some of them just have a special place that they won't. Yeah, absolutely. Some of it comes down to like, for me, like the
2: garlic juice would never leave just in the sense that it's such a nostalgic strain for me. And it was like, it was the first for me. So like that one will always be a part of my life. But like the lap dance is like a personal smoke level. Like that one is just like, I love purple pebbles. I've been, I've been washing that one for a friend gardener for a long time. So like, I love the smoke on it, but like then lap dance stepped it up in a sense that it was like a more complex per- not and maybe not even more complex because Purple Pebbles is sur- super complex already, but like a different complexity to it that I enjoyed a ton. Yeah, that one is that one's really been impressing me. I'm really stoked to run some more of
0: that. Yeah. Is that Secret Society gear?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was the collab they did with Superior Solventless.
0: Okay, cool. That I guess that's where that Pebbles comes from. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. What other breeders, I know you mentioned some earlier, but like what other breeders are you interested in checking out kind of going forward? Uh, Ronin Seeds is one that I want to peep. I want to get some of their
2: gear and rock with it. I've been seeing a bunch of fire from them. And then I'm really stoked to go through all of Pua's gear. Like I was saying too, I was a little late on popping that for any of my outdoor stuff, but I'm going to fill a room with that. And I'm pretty stoked to go through all of that
0: gear. Going back to the cultivation kind of randomly, just to understand, with the amended soil, it's beds that are there all the time, but then round per round, you're adding amendments to it?
2: So for my, for my greenhouses, it's beds that are there. And then for my indoor, it's, I'm amending on like a big tarp and then I'm filling my pots and bringing them
0: inside. Gotcha. And so those pots, it's like a one-time use almost type thing? Yeah, I, I I like to recycle
2: my soil, so I'll pull it off and then I have enough like uh, built up that I'm cycling through it so that it's like a big recycling yard, basically in my backyard. The wife doesn't love it, but I get a, it. it's nice to be able to reuse all the soil and uh, put it all to use and I'll just have
1: to throw it away. So I just keep reamending it all. Okay, cool. Yeah, it sounds like you have a nice little rhythm there, even though it might not look <laughs> pretty.
0: <laughs> But yeah, we love their piles, but the wife loves them less. What size pots? Because you mentioned earlier, you're not like growing you know, huge plants.
2: Yeah. So for my, for my indoor, I like to rock 10-gallon pots. Sometimes I'll go a little bit bigger, or a little bit smaller, depending on the plant. Like my garlic juice really, really goes, like that one goes into beast mode, man. Like I'll throw that one in 15s and it just goes super,
0: super hard.
2: Most of the time I just rock
0: in 10s. You mentioned that it kind of varies from, like, strain to strain, for example, how much water they take. Do you see a similar characteristic with the amending of the soil? Like, will some of them need more amending during, or do they all pretty much finish out with the amendment that you provide them?
2: Uh, So sometimes I do notice plants uh, starting to, like, finish off a little earlier than others that are just kind of kicking in and running out of their food sooner. But typically speaking, the the fee that we have or the amendment schedule that we have rather is going to be like pretty,
0: pretty perfect for all of them within a few days or a week. And when you're pulling trichomes or pulling your plants, what are some of the factors that you're looking for when doing so? So like when we're like, what, uh,
2: what characteristics of the trichomes am I looking for when we're starting to pull plants down?
0: whether it's in the trichomes or possibly in the physical plants themselves or maybe God. both?
2: So when I'm looking at the plants pre-harvest and kind of looking for for the characteristics, I'm looking at the heads and I'm going to see if they're getting cloudy or if any of them have started to amber out yet. And I'm looking at the physical characteristics of the hairs too. Are they still really blonde? Or if they're papayas, are they still pink? Or are they have they browned out yet? And what percentage of them have browned out yet? Because that for me is like, it's not perfect on all of them. Each plant's gonna be different and some of them will be uh need to go longer. But like typically speaking, you can get a really, really nice, really full terpene profile off of like being able to judge off of the cloudiness of the heads and off of the, the hair coloration. And from there, like without getting overly ripe is is kind of what you're looking for. So like I like to go at like probably 80% of like hairs ambering out and then for the cloudiness, I like I like to see amber heads, but not more than like, you know, not more than like 10% of amber heads.
0: And with the heads, is it something that you're taking like a look at with loops or you're just kind of eyeballing them, or how is that working?
2: So both. I'm originally I'm just kind of going through and just eyeballing it all. But once I start to spot any amber heads with the naked eye, I'll bust out the loop and start taking a closer look at it and being more investigative about those plants.
0: Do you find that that's something that you are able to dial in more as you have a genetic be part of your stable more and more? For example, the garlic juice. Do you feel like you've gotten better at knowing exactly when that plant needs to come down?
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. Every single round is another. Is just like another year with a. You know, you get a. You get to see that. You get to see how it reacts. You get to see it through every single stage, and then you get to just like be there through every single thing and every single repeat, you notice the nuances, you notice exactly what's the same, what's slightly different, what's changing. It's all there. So like as long as you're taking your notes and you're paying attention, like
0: it's, it's all there for you to, to distinguish and be able to see. Do you feel at any point like the color of the resin comes into play with the quality or have you seen a range of colored resin, since that's kind of a topic, again, that, you know, is up for debate in public perception.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, there's, like, one of my Trop's Smashmelons Pheno's, has, like, purple resin, which, like, when pressed into rosin, turns out almost like a rosy, like, light of color, which is interesting. But, like, I don't like to run that one as an individual Pheno anymore because people were like, yo, this is kind of dark. And it's like, okay, but it's not, like, a miscoloration of the resin it's it's just like that representation of that specific resin it looks like that like it's not it, it's not degraded product or anything like that but people weren't into it so now I'll use it for mixed washes and uh people appreciate it a hell of a lot more it's got an amazing flavor profile to it but it just doesn't have the visual uh the visuals that the market's currently asking for which in my opinion is is I don't I don't think with that mentality like I've I've said a couple of times that while we've been talking that like quality resin should be quality resin and it shouldn't be dictated by the color of the resin or anything like that. Like it, it should be high quality. And what each individual judges quality by is going to be a little bit different. Some people will judge quality on color and that's okay. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. From my point of view, though, like color is the last thing you should be judging it on. Effects, medicinal quality, potency, flavor, like all these things are important, but like what does the color actually do for the experience besides flexing it for people or something like that? Like the color doesn't actually change anything for the experience. So for me, it doesn't matter to me, but I understand what the patients want in a sense. So I do try to stray away from any darker colored resin potency wise, man. You'll get some really quality medicine with some with some full term heads, though. Like, ooh, you get
0: some real good potency in there. Yeah, and it's funny because it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier. I think it was with the change of name of like the Garlicimo into mm-hmm. the Panther and you know, people now liking this product because it's like you've got over this mental hurdle of this belief system you have in there whether it's a name whether it's the color of the resin and then when people actually experience it they they enjoy it right it doesn't become about any of those factors necessarily yeah absolutely
2: they're just appreciating it for the resin and the quality of it and that's it and once you can get past those things man like there's a lot of good resin there's a lot of quality resin out there that people are overlooking just because of names or colors or things like that like and there's also a lot of resin out there too, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Jared, dude, I appreciate you hanging out with me so long. I'll start winding this down, kind of shooting questions all over the spot. You brought up the bubble magics earlier. How do you sanitize them? What's your process?
2: Lots and lots of ISO. I went down so I went down to the like the beer store and uh, I got a bunch of steel brushes for cleaning those things out and a lot of ISO, man. I get in there real nice and deep, clean everything. Iso bath for all of my bags and everything. Like it's, it's attention to detail, nooks and crannies, getting it all clean. Cause that's the thing when you're using a bubble magic, man, like there's, there's corners to it. It's not just like, a, it's not just like a stainless steel vessel that it's like super easy to clean. Like there's a lot more to it in that regards. And like, I've had to modify my bubble magic so that I can disassemble it super quick and easily and get to all of the hoses and everything. It's a super simple design, so cleaning it really isn't that hard at all. But it's just like paying attention and actually getting into the nooks and crannies is is what's really important about it.
0: So one of the things I've always been curious about is like the hose that comes out of the machine that goes into the collection bags, for example. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you need to replace or is that something that, again, can just be upkept?
2: So I replace that because I replace that every so often because I just don't like the the ISO on on that hose specifically. So I'll replace that every so often, every few washes, and I just got a big ass roll of it, and I just go through that because I feel like that's that's something that I can keep clean just by recycling the product and getting rid of it every single time, and then not every single wash, but uh, you know, every two washes or so. And that's something that is super easy to handle and take care of in that sense. And it eliminates
1: any questions or anything about that product breaking down with the ISO. Do you get to smoke a lot of other people's hash?
2: Yeah, man, that's one of the perks of the job is being able to trade a lot of cool hash makers product and meeting a lot of people that are willing to trade my product for other people's product that they happen to carry and stuff like that. So I do get to smoke a lot of hash.
0: What are some of the flavors that you've tried recently that you've been a fan of? Let's see.
2: The so the blue slushy from Hose beast, fire. Anything from the homie Amberjack is always just super super fire. The zillions from Masterball. What else we got here? Barry's dog shit cherry pie smacking, dude. I had some lamb chop terps that actually really surprised the shit out of me. Those guys are killing it out east. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I thought it was the Simo, but it's Fortissimo is uh, is that one. I need to reach out to dude and see what the hell it is. But that stuff is straight gas, bro. It's very similar to the Sex Panther. I like that one a lot.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of the Lamb Chop.
2: (laughs) Yeah, bro, Lamb Chop Terps. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's their Instagram too. The
0: homie hooked me up with a couple jars of their work and it's super fire. That's cool. That sounds unique for sure. I'm into unique. You mentioned that part of the things that goes into analyzing a resin and whether it stays is how long it takes to cure. Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So some of the, some resin is going to cure a lot faster than others. And I've had resin that takes an upwards of like four or five weeks to really cure out for me. For me, like it really needs to get to that a nice cakey consistency. So It's going to be, it's going to be a little bit up in the air, like, you know, like each strain is going to be different. So trying to, trying to select strains that aren't going to take forever to cure out is kind of important for me too. I don't want something that's going to take four weeks or longer than that when I've got everything else is ready to go in jars and this one's still halfway through its cure and hasn't even been stirred yet. It's not the most important thing in the world for me because I could always work around the timeline if it's exceptional resin, but it, it definitely plays a role in selections.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, again, going back to talking about nuances, it's always interesting to see people's different nuances and what goes into their decision making. And that's also based off what they're trying to achieve. So all these different things together kind of bring together like unique opinions, which is always cool to hear. If you had to say something that you aspire for tree city solventless in the next year or two, what would that be? I'd say for
2: the uh, next year or two's aspirations would be to step out of my comfort zone and get to more events and get to more competitions and try to put our name out there a little bit more.
0: Well, speaking of, you know, this is something that you and I have talked about a few times, which I think is a cool topic, which is why I bring it up, is the fact that you took fifth place last year at the smoking jacket in what we called like the maker's choice, which you know, it's like a three tiered system where you have expert judges, you have the makers judging themselves, and then you also have a public set of judges, which obviously I find interesting to see the dynamic between those different opinions, because there's a range of experience, there's a range of exposure. And so you've told me that it's meant a lot to you to be recognized by your peers. And I think it's extra interesting to me to hear it because of hearing your backstory and being like, oh, I used to be a fan of hashmakers and I worked really hard to try to be one. And now like I've gotten this um, I don't know what you want to call it, right? It's like this kind of acknowledgement from your peers. So talk to us about what that meant to you. Man, that was
2: that was huge for me to to get that it was like that validation from my peers. Like that was with my garlic juice too, man. Like, like I said, the first thing I ever hunted and I brought that in there, like. I know how much that plant means to me. And I know how much I enjoy that plant. But to like, to put it down in front of that group of people, and to have them agree, like consensus that that's top five, like, dude, that like, that literally like made my birthday when I heard that I was like, shit, that's crazy, bro. That's crazy. Like, I didn't go in there with any expectations of winning. You know what I mean? Like, I'm very small scale. I'm very humble. I just wanted to go experience it. I've never been a part of a competition like that before. So like, the opportunity, like I couldn't pass it up, like I had to go get in there, and then that acknowledgement, like you were saying it, it was insane, man, to like get validated like that from like that group of peers specifically, like so many people I've looked up to and so many people I've chatted with and like asked questions and stuff like it was crazy, bro it was it was, it was amazing, and it's something that like I'll, I'll never
0: forget yeah, that's super cool. It's super cool, obviously for me to hear that uh, kind of me being on on the other end of it. But yeah, that's awesome, man.
2: Yeah, bro, I really appreciate you putting that together and making that all happen. That was that was an amazing
0: experience. Dude, like I told you before we started this interview, it's always my honor, like not, you know, making these interviews, speaking to you guys, uh, making these events come together. Like, yeah, it's all a big trip for me. So I'm just a stoked. So I appreciate you
1: coming out and making it possible as well, man. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. So if you had to name the three most influential hash makers for you, who would those be? Three most influential hash makers. Oh man, that's a hard one. I would have
2: to say Cubans for sure on that list. Uh, back when I was still just squishing hash and stuff, man, me and my, me and a homie had him process dry sift some, some flour for us and stuff. And I squished all that for us. Like we just had to head stashed the whole fucking bash. Like, Cuban's absolutely on that list. Barry's on that list.
1: Trying to think of what the Mount Rushmore looks like right now. We got Cuban, we got Barry. Man. Watching, watching Ahti win a bunch of fucking awards was amazing too. Like I would say he's probably on that list too. Final question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast who hasn't been on, who would it be? I got a shout out to homie Barry, man. Get Justin on there. He's, he's an OG. He's been at
2: this for a grip and he's a young buck too.
0: Cool. Yeah. I actually got a chance to meet them up at the Kushkirk event up down in Southern Oregon. Uh, I think I mentioned this to you. And yeah, they're both pretty cool dudes, him and his brother. And they had some fire selections. And I actually wanted to try, I think you brought it up, the cherry dog shit that they, yeah. they didn't They didn't have any. So uh, I tried some of their. I think a pina colada, and it's really good, man. So or I might be wrong about the, that. I might be the wrong. What is it? The peach colada. The peach colada. There it is. I knew I know something was not right, but yeah, it's really good. So it'll be cool. I'll, I'll see if I can make that happen. Oh yeah, bro. I would love to. Hear, I would love to hear that one. Yeah, likewise. All right, Jared. Well, I appreciate you, dude. It's been fun hanging out. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? Man, just. Thank you again for having me on. It was, it was
2: amazing to sit here and talk to you and hang out. Appreciate the opportunity. And
0: yeah, look forward to seeing you soon, bro. Yeah, likewise, man. I'm, like I said, I'm super thankful to you. Uh, and I'm also thankful to anybody that stuck around with us this long. And we'll catch you next time. All right. Catch you next time, bro. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.